Welcome to The Gridiron Show. I'm taping this on a Tuesday afternoon. It will run on Wednesday morning. If anything crazy happens, as it is liable to do in this league at the moment, in the meantime, then I apologize for missing that. I am joined on the line by Spencer Schultz from Baltimore Beatdown. We are going to go deep diving into the Baltimore Ravens. Spencer, how are you? Doing quite well. Uh, Ali and I were just talking. We're, we're caffeinated very much so. He was, so for the listeners out there, you guys might need to slow this one down a little bit. He's like, hey, I'm sorry if I talk a little fast. I was like, brother, I just I just had espresso. We're good to go. So I'm, I'm caffeinated. It's a little muggy over here in Maryland, but we're, uh, we're kicking. We're alive. We got draft season, free agency still underway. It's a good time to uh, get into the nerdy side of football. The, the off season's the, the nerdy side, as I like to call it, and I'm a nerd, so I enjoy this time of year very much so. Let's get into some Raven stuff, then. I want to start with you on the defense. That, that's the most fascinating part to me schematically. Wink Martindale goes out. They bring Mike McDonald in. For the listeners at home, Mike McDonald went to visit a little stop with John Harbour, with Jim Harbour, excuse me, at Michigan after being with John Harbour forever. Um, when it did the one year with Jim in college and then now returns to the Ravens to take over the thing. And it's fascinating because those are, those are, they have some crossover approach, but it's really hard for me to get a beat on what McDonald will bring back to the NFL from what he did when he was running the show in college, just because obviously, I mean, he had Aiden Hutchinson and David Jarbone, the first overall pick and maybe another first round pick who knows with the injury as pass rushes. And it was just pure, we're playing two man. It's, you know, we're playing man coverage across the board. He completely threw out what Don Brown was doing at Michigan before. They played a ton of man coverage uh, with basically just, yeah, two man, sometimes one man with a rat in a hole. And that was basically it. I mean, they did some pretty creative movement stuff. I don't know if you can really bring that to the NFL or not, but just in general, how are you kind of taking some of the stuff he did in college and saying whether or not he can bring that to the pros or are you kind of discounting that and saying, well, he's off this Ravens tree anyway, and it'll probably be much of a much miss. Yeah, so McDonald spent time with Dean Pease as his defensive coordinator as the overarching um, structural architect for a little bit as well when he was coming up and very different philosophy defensively from Wink Martindale. So what you end up hearing that makes perfect sense, um, it's kind of like, you know, having two parents that end up getting divorced and they have, they're feed, giving you exact opposite advice. <laughs> you end up being able to cater a little bit of both. So what you'll hear McDonald reverberate and you do see on tape is being multiple, being able to use different packages, different um, game plans to try and, really attack the weakness of an offense. Um, you see, you'll see the cover zero. You'll see some conservative two-man. You'll see all those kinds of things. So um, the one thing I would say that will change a little, it, it feels like he's going to ask a little bit more of his edge defenders, a little bit more of his safeties, and a little bit less of his linebackers, um, just in terms of how many keys, you know, the, the slew of multiplicity that you need to be to be a linebacker. And something we've seen in Wake Martindale's defense is that Younger players have not excelled at processing within his defense. So I think the grand hope there is to simplify a Patrick Queen, who the Ravens are um, very excited by, but also have been somewhat cautious with. And there's a kind of dichotomy of, of what's happened there. But ultimately, Mike McDonald's going to be multiple. He's going to want to be able to throw dime, nickel, everything at you. Um, you mentioned it. He wants to play too many. He wants to have a rat and do the single high looks. And you have to think they brought Marcus Williams in ultimately for a reason too, to do some middle of the field close coverages at times. So um, something that the Ravens have 
and I think John Harbaugh, as well as Eric Costa, have wanted to do um, is, is be able to run and operate with their bump and run corners in those middle of field close coverages, funnel things, have more help underneath, uh, more underneath defenders dropping in coverage and, and able to sit underneath and um, force to force teams to throw deep. So they struggled so much with Wink Martindale last year. And a lot of people say, oh, well, they were injured. But really, the only player that was hurt before the season that was of any impact was Marcus Peters. And you see him, you know, the Ravens defense had a horrific, historically horrific year, allowing deep passes, long touchdowns, blown assignments, blown coverages, simple stuff, just even on like two man bunches or, or some trips and just not communicating properly on who's going to take the high man, who's going to stay underneath and letting someone fly free release on their stem and trying to go catch them and, and hopefully save a touchdown or something of the sort. So um, tackling issues were bad as well. And, and I got the pleasure of interviewing Ed Reed and he was like, at the NFL level, you kind of, you know, got to make a play, but um, some other things they can string along, but overall, I think McDonald's just going to want to be the love child of Dean Pease and Wink Martindale with his multiplicity. What was the first thing when you did you, I don't know if you did dig through a bunch of Michigan or you plan to do that to, to see what, crosses over the amount of line movement is really fascinating because sometimes i'm watching i'm going are they just not communicating and it, it gave me flashback horror shows of some of the raven stuff i mean any kind of movement last year and it was just toast that those guys could not get themselves lined up could not communicate flashing to the sideline double hand signals oh no three of us are lined up in the same spot and this is just a disaster for everyone particularly in coverage there is an awful lot of stemming the line of flipping gaps and doing it. Usually, particularly the Ravens and at the pro level, you try and slam a move post-snap, right? Or kind of at the snap is the best. And you're trying to throw off some kind of movement or you, you're kind of countering to emotion. This was really like, almost like the Cincinnati Bengals walking package where it's like, let's walk one die down, down, we'll all kick across a gap. And it's kind of got its own rhythm to it. I, I don't know if you can do that at the NFL level. The Ravens, the, the Bengals, as I mentioned, do it some. I, I wonder if he would be open to saying that is a core philosophy for me to move. Or if at the NFL level he says, look, I want to have world-class players all over the place. I will just put it in the package I think is best. Yeah, I don't need to necessarily kick to try and cheat somehow. I can just put it in Michael Pierce now. They've gone and got me Michael Pierce, this dominant nose cycle. I'll just throw him in the middle of the field. Yeah, I think it will be simplified a little bit. Um, you know, communication wise, when you're forcing all of that communication, teams are going to go tempo. They're going to they're going to quick snap the ball. They're going to go silent count, get up to the line, snap the ball before you've communicated. You know, you don't have guys exploding off the ball. You don't have uh, the ability to to get everything set, and that just leads to more blown assignments ultimately. So there is you know the capacity, but you have to be deliberate in in those movements. You have to be very deliberate, very quick. You have to be ready for it. And I, I think it's kind of tough, you know, year one of a new reign, maybe there's a little bit of issues with that, especially early in the season, something you're working out through training camp ultimately. But um, like you said, you know, Michael Pierce, you're going to stick him on the field. He's not moving around a bunch. Um, he's not going to be, you know, lining up four eye or, mm -hmm. and then, and then kicking into three tech and doing all these things. You're, you're sticking him there to go beat a center. So um, simplifying it for sure. Um, you know, you mentioned Ojabo and Hutchinson, they had guys and, and Ojabo really was able to drop off ball and, and do a lot of movement stuff and, you know, take away some throwing lanes and, and, you know, cover a back somewhat confidently and things of that nature. So, um, interesting to see how they use Adafe away in, in somewhat similarity there and, and something Wink Martindale did constantly mugging and yeah. bluffing and these moving parts and all of that also contributes 
you know, an experienced vet quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger had already seen all your bells and whistles time and time again. You're not really fooling him at that point. So um, something I think a lot of Ravens fans started to grow a little frustrated with was all of the chaos pre-snap that Wink Martindale also had ends up leading to, again, blown assignments and not simplifying things for your defense at times. So um, there can be benefits and it, it can give a Justin Fields a fit, you know, a rookie quarterback who might be a little slower and more deliberate in their process. But when you're talking about, uh, let's say a Matt Ryan or, you know, a veteran quarterback that can operate quickly and, and get the ball out quickly, then you're, you're going to end up kind of increasing or decreasing your margin for error and allowing yourself to make mistakes defensively. And that's the thing at the NFL level. So much of the defensive side of the sport now is copying from offenses and saying, particularly in the pressure package game is you got to, you pick like five pressure packages or, or pressure paths, I should say. And then you dress it up with, well, this guy's going to play it on this down. You know, the, the Mike's going to go on this down. The Sam's going to go on this down, but the paths are the same. And you can kind of get yourself to 50, 60 pressures overall, but with only really five pressure paths. Now that is dominant at the college level, right? No one can stop Georgia. It's like, oh my God, Nakobe Dean's coming this time. Oh no, he's coming this time. Oh, it's the slot this time. Even though they're all hitting in the same spots, it, it's so confusing at the college level. At the NFL level, Tom Brady looks and goes, so there's five paths. Cool. <laughs> I'll just pick it up with my eyes real fast and it's game over and it's a tough one for me because what martindale was trying to do last year was kind i don't want to say the forefront but it's all really sound defensive stuff in terms of where the sport is going he was kind of right on the cutting edge of inverting the downs right that's the new thing in defensive talk is first down is our attack down win first down which all coaches say but so much of the national conversation and analysis is so often about what is your third down completion percentage? Can you get off the field on third down? That's like the ism that everyone jumps to, right? Well, the only way to get off the field on third down is to dominate on first down in the NFL, basically. And so Martindale was like, I send all the pressure on first down. This is an attack down for us now. And they just stunk at it. It's like, I don't know. You go through the numbers and they were like 27th in EPA on first down. And they're sending that they were, I think, somewhere in the region of 16 to 18 blitzes a game for the vast, vast majority of the season. And the whole stack of them are first down. And then you go organic pass rush, or as you mentioned, there's some kind of sim pressure where you mug the center, get the protection one way, but we're only really sending four guys. And so it's kind of confusing how it was so bad, given that he was kind of doing some of the stuff big picture wise that a lot of the league wants to do and just doesn't quite have the pieces or the balls to run yet. Certainly. And I feel like Wink Martindale was really cutting edge 2018. He came out and, and had a defense that was talented, was deep, but also really, you know, I, I kind of liken his defense to maybe Dave Aranda's with those Sims and the terminology very different, obviously, but a lot of similarities with those Sim pressures and it was successful, but it feels like the league shifted that way. He was at the forefront of it and it kind of remained the same and, and grew a little bit stale um, within that ultimately. And, and you're right on, you're right on there on third down the Ravens, especially for the vast majority of when they were healthy defensively were dominant on third down was the grand irony. So it was kind of the exact opposite of what you'd expect in that sense. They're getting crushed on first down um, teams started using screens. The Colts have Jonathan Taylor, just run a slip screen, take it 80 yards. Uh, I think that was on first down. So it felt like there wasn't enough discipline within that aggression to, to kind of, you know, uh, hedge themselves with it. 
And, and they did dial it back later in the year, but simply it felt like more a result of having to play a Robert Jackson wearing number 17 on Devontae Adams and triple covering Devontae Adams because you have no depth left. So they finally started to tune it down, but um, it, it just kind of felt like, you know, it, it, they turned over on themselves a couple of times. The engine flipped over a couple of times. They, they didn't have any new tricks um, in the bag and uh, they, they were mugging a ridiculous amount and it was with young players and, to me, you could really even see pre-snap who's, who's bluffing. They're, they're back on their weight. They're not doing a good job even disguising it at that point. You're like, oh, well, I have Chris Board and Tony Jefferson lined up in the A-gap. One of them is tripping on themselves, falling forward. <laughs> One of them is not even, you know, is completely on their heels. So you're just making it easy for veteran quarterbacks. You know, down the stretch, they played Stafford and Aaron Rodgers and Roethlisberger and guys that have seen all the tricks in the bag at the, that point. So um, it, it was ironic. Third down, very successful got off the field a ton completion percent, I think on third and five or greater up until like the, the wheels really fell off was like a 51% um, on third and five and longer. So doing a great job there, but you, you hit the nail on the head. First down was, was real trouble for them and teams played to that aggression. It was such blatant aggression so often that it became predictable. Um, so it, there's no disguise to it anymore. There's no wild card. And I think Mike Tomlin said about the Ravens in general, you know, there's no surprise when they go for two, we're expecting them to go for two. So when you expect the Ravens to bring those pressures, you have pressure beaters that you installed throughout the week and um, you know, checks and things of that nature. So the higher level quarterbacks were really able to take advantage of a first down. Yeah. I had um, a coach email me mid season. Cause I think three weeks in a row, I'd written about this concept of inverting the downs and I'd used Vance Joseph. And I think I wrote about wink twice uh, straddled either side of the Vance Joseph piece. And he just replied to me on the email saying, um, you realize that when the defense inverts down, we can invert the downs too. Okay. We will just flip flop them. And then we, you know, we'll run it in college, you know, we'll run our, our RPO inside zone. We'll just do that on third and one then instead of first and 10. It's like, it's one of those things where it sounds cool when you're doing the coaching presentation and it makes sense when you just think about it threadly. Then as you dig more into it and you start playing it out and you get to week eight, week nine, you're like, this isn't actually some magic formula. To Practical application of it. You realize that there's another human on the end of that <laughs> that sees what you're doing. And it was a symbol for them, I feel like, of didn't have the coverage pieces to live in that five or six man world and then just didn't have the, the pass rushing juice, right? To just live in a four-man world as McDonald got to do essentially at Michigan, which was he used that fifth guy to just set the protection however he wanted it. So he was able to set the protection and then send Aiden Hutchinson, David Ajabo to go and wreck the protection. So I, I, I'm fascinated to me when I look at them now, as we move into this McDonald area, it's like, as I was thinking about, I was talking about it today, I was like, well, there's a Darius th Smith thing turned around on them. I mean, just to see what they do by getting a rotational rusher from somewhere. But every single thing that I think about, I just come back to the Marcus Williams signing. It is such a transformational piece to drop in that secondary to have maybe not the best free safety in the league, but if not the best, as near as makes absolutely no difference to you. He is that special in terms of instincts. And the only issue McDonald ever had from a schematic perspective at Michigan was against incredibly unbalanced formations, four by one quads, super spread three by one, that kind of old school Baylor style where he would try and play his, some of his middle field uh, close coverages and, and he would just get himself completely out leveraged to the perimeter. Marcus Williams changes everything. It just changes your entire, the entire geometry of the field for you defensively, right? Certainly. And even 
considering just the hashes in college football, you're going to think there's going to be a, a little bit more, uh, a little, little bit less of those issues than bringing someone who is such a consistent communicator, someone who um, can just sit on the roof and whatever spills through the top can effectively find it consistently and take it away, make the play on the ball, plays with rhythm, plays with timing, plays with intelligence, um, just arrives at the catch point with length. He's a jump. I mean, it's a couple of years ago, but he jumped 43 and a half inches at the combine. And you just see that you see the 78 inch wingspan um, show up. He's just long rangy and uh, a guy that, you know, it's, it's like there's Kevin Byard, Jesse Bates, Justin Simmons, a, a couple guys in the league. It's that, that R word range that is so coveted. And they wanted it with Earl Thomas in 2019. It worked really well in Wink Martindale's defense. It allowed Humphrey and Peters to dictate leverage and forcing releases. Um, it limited, you know, the route tree that guys could run and you're able to funnel that way. And I think we also see McDonald try to shade, it appeared more towards the, you know, dominant force and then use his more confident matchup corner to, to take away the other side. So those things are all enabled by Marcus Peters and, He's just going to be air traffic control back there for them and, and able to sift through and, and take away whatever spills over top. Def quarterbacks don't throw at the guy. Um, Tom Brady avoided him like the plague <laughs> yeah. multiple times, which maybe, I mean, you, Tom Brady kept losing to him. So maybe it was a bad idea, but there are even times just in the last matchup uh, or excuse me, the first matchup last year that the Saints won, you watch Gronk run a seam. And you see Brady see him slip between level two and level three into the end zone and see Marcus Williams baiting Tom Brady and Tom Brady throwing to Rob Gronkowski went through the rest of his progression instead, instead of trying to fit a ball there when there was, there was space to try it. So it's, it's high level stuff from Marcus Williams and um, the middle of the field close coverages is kind of just ironic in the grand scheme of things, because we see the Brandon Staley's and Vic Fangio is really starting to inspire the two man world again. And, um, the Ravens kind of, kind of zagging against that probably with, with the signing of Marcus Williams. And that's the, the beauty of him, of him having this compound effect of making everything easier is yeah, you go in a two man world that that's great. And it's a bit more conservative and just so you can cover more field. But if you have the really special guy in the middle of the field, all of those guys would say, F let's go play three match. Why not get an extra body in the box? The thing about him, I think that is uber special. The best thing he can ever have on his resume is that interception where he baits Aaron Rodgers. There are so few guys in the league compared to what, what I think the general fan believes that actually bait people. Most baits are a mistake in the NFL. <laughs> You've misread the key and uh-oh, all of a sudden the ball's in my lap because the quarterback was expecting me to do the right thing. And by doing the wrong thing, he threw the ball to me. That happens a bunch. Marcus Williams is one of the rare guys who understands how special he is athletically. And so will purely bait quarterbacks with his initial step to get the ball to where he wants it to go to. And you just never see that really outside of the really special ones. And I know we're using what sounds like hyperbole, but I really believe it with the old Thomases, Ed Reed obviously being the best example. You are talking about that level of difference maker being dropped in the middle of the secondary, basically. Exactly. And when you're watching Marcus Williams, the first things that jumped out to me, you're just he belongs. He's comfortable. He likes it. He's got a lazy boy recliner back there, 15, 20, 30 yards downfield. He has plays with this almost disturbing level of tranquility when he's sitting, waiting for it, reading it and, and forcing a quarterback to make a decision is there. They might be trying to read him when he's playing on the roof. So um, there's just very little wasted motion. When he sees it, he breaks on it and he has the athletic ability and the size to go erase it. So it, it's, again, the, like you said, there's a handful of guys 
that possess that special trait. It's like, you know, edge rusher wise, the guys that can ghost and dip around the edge. There's only so many that can do that to an NFL offensive tackle. And it's just something that is worth paying and enhances your defense that much more. Lastly on the defense, I did want to talk about Patrick Queen. I know you mentioned him earlier. When I watched him through the midpoint of the season and went through every snap up until about week eight, I, I was dumbfounded by how bad it was. I, I did not, I never, ever, ever thought it'd be that bad. And I do think they they misused him in, in pretty, uh, do I want to say that? I'm not going to say that about Wink Martindale out loud in the podcast. <laughs> I just feel like they misused him. Wink Martindale knows so much more about football than me. So I just think they misused him. The, the take on ability is so bad. And I just don't think he was ever drafted to be that guy. So did it get better towards the end of the year? Did I miss him at the end? I know they brought Josh Bynes in, who I thought was excellent. I can't believe they just dropped him in from like week five. And all of a sudden, you know, he is taking on blocks and he's kind of the run game killer for them. But then you have this dynamic where, well, you have to put him on the field. Then we're in an old school. You're the third down guy. You're the first down guy. But we didn't want to be that team. We wanted to be multiple. And it just kind of fed into the whole soup that just became a mess for them that they could never get the pieces on with the plays they wanted, essentially. Did the queen improve? I remember LSU, they kept everything so clean for him. And so he could just fly to the ball and everything was so messy watching the Ravens. It's like, why are they asking him to go kill the point of attack there? Shouldn't he just be flying through a mop-up duty? It was a bit peculiar to me. Certainly. And what they ended up doing with him was reducing his snaps so that he essentially played in base two, four, five or base three, four, Pretty much clean three, like Madden-esque three, four, and two, four, five formations between the 20s. They took him out on third down and they took him out in the red zone. They used Chris Board in the red zone. Queen would come in back in goal-to-go situations a little bit. And Queen, like you said at LSU, didn't play a lot. He played, you know, four or five hundred snaps, maybe six hundred snaps that final season. A couple other games earlier when Devin White was out the previous year. Um, so didn't have all that experience. The processing, not quite there. At LSU, you watch his tape. You do see some take-on ability. He is smaller. He is shorter. But the aggression was um, there. The, the, the take-on, the decisiveness was there because it was simplified, like you said. So they reduced his snaps. He also, just to me, had such a foundational poor ability to just play square to the line of scrimmage. And as you see a linebacker just working bag drills, moving almost like a D-pad on a on a Xbox controller, being able to move forward, move backward, move left, move right, and always stay square to the line of scrimmage, always turning his shoulders. And I'm four five. I've had trouble sifting through the point of attack. If I'm running to the sideline, I'm running like a bat out of hell. I'm Baltimore, Baltimore Ravens. Um, John Harbaugh makes shirts. Life is short. Run to the ball. So I'm going to run like uh, a man possessed. And oh, there goes Jonathan Taylor stopping, cutting back, and I fly by him. So it was just playing under a little more control. They let him specifically focus on base defense. Then he ended up towards the end of the season staying on the field. Um, so I, I think we saw vast improvements. It's what they should have done his rookie season, having him perfect a role and then grow, perfect another role, grow. And then suddenly you have a complete player that you feel more comfortable leaving on the football field. Um, and I think it's really interesting from that draft perspective, just quickly, the Rams talk about how they like smaller draft classes and how in the, the last bargaining agreement that the amount of practice time a player got was so greatly reduced for a rookie the, that if you're trying to get a guy up to speed, it's going to take a lot longer. There's so much less practice time now than there used to be. So factoring that into an evaluation and then how you ease a guy in as opposed to saying, oh, you started nine games at LSU, you had a simplified role. 
boom, let's put you in one of the more complex moving piece defensive fronts in football that's on the cutting edge that requires so much of you mentally and leave you on the field the entire time and, and sink or swim. Um, and it didn't work for him. So I think they did a good job cutting their losses that way, reassessing him midseason and allowing him to, to feel more confident and getting him playing under control and playing a little cleaner and quicker ultimately. So uh, we'll, we'll see how it starts out. And crazy part, week one in, in Las Vegas last year, he looked like, uh, oh my God, he's a first round linebacker. This dude could be an all pro. And then from there, really just soured again for, for about a month. So a very interesting story on Patrick Queen so far in his career and um, just kind of reminds you a lot of the other first round guys, Tremaine Edmonds, Devin Bush, these younger guys who come in, these elite athletes, and it's a different game truly. So, uh, was, was a little complicated for him last year. That's a great point because it's funny when you go through those linebackers now and they're so fast and you watch them in college and they move them everywhere and they're running all the fun creepers and pressures and all the different coachisms. And then you watch them in the NFL just get popped on duo. And as you said, get spun around and it's like, uh oh, they're getting out leveraged with the most basic designs. And it's like, oh, this is a different sport at this level for these guys. Now it is such a complex position for them to have to come into. And as you said, for him specifically in that position, in that system, it was, it's a big, big learning curve. And they seem to have mismanaged that a little bit. Josh McDaniels ate him alive on duo and counter and trap and just the most basic stuff in 2020. It was, it was crazy to watch. I had said one last thing on defense, but I have to raise this on a, on a Ravens podcast because Again, back to, I wrote a big feature on them last year. The thing that jumped out to me was we hold these universal truths in the NFL. And one of them is that the Baltimore Ravens have a nasty defense, obviously. And so I was kind of writing around that point. And one thing that's that is these guys don't hit very hard. Now I have this massive back and forth with coach Vass, who I'm sure you're aware of that. I believe that great defenses have violence and Vass tells me, no, you watch the great defenses. You assume that they're the violent ones. No, it's the greatness first, not the violence. And I say, okay, cool. And then I'm watching that Ravens defense. I'm like, these guys don't hit. This is the Baltimore Ravens. Where is the heat seeking missile in this team who is out there having fun blasting people? And I know we live in the modern age where you're not allowed to say that because, you know, all the head trauma stuff fully get that. And I'm all on board with that stuff. But there is a physicality. Clean tackles only. Clean tackles only. But you can still level a guy. Yes. There's a physicality to this sport. And the great defenses go from aggressive to violent. And this defense felt passive to me. Yeah, I think it was due to just uncertainty. And I, again, I, I think it was trying to flip the flip the script on first down and doing these things. And there was just limited opportunities where it felt like guys were, were allowed to sit tight, watch a play develop for a split second, and then drive on a football and hit. And it was all of these moving parts, um, trying to, you know, have a guy, you know, so many stunts up front, so many different um, moving parts constantly where it's like, where is the opportunity where they can kind of just watch mesh where a safety can watch mesh and sit still and then go, you know, pop someone in their rib cage and hit through them and take them down. So I'm there with you. It's funny that Vass says that it's such a, such a vassism, but it, it goes hand in hand playing a great, smart, sound defense. You feel like leads to guys being in the right place, being able to drive on the football or run the alley, seeing the, seeing the keys, seeing into the matrix and then hitting through it. And so I, I think that there is, you know, I think you guys are simpatico, but want to be on one side of the argument ultimately, but a great defense will hit because they're smart. They're in the right place. They understand their assignment and can go end it. So I, I fully agree with you there. There's not hitters. Um, Chuck Clark, 
a couple times, you know, took a guy's head off late in the season, especially um, over the middle of the field. You know, he knocked Deontay Johnson out of a game with one of the most clean hits I've seen in a while, but very rare. It's a lot of drag down, you know, gang tackle, you know, everybody holding the guy up and things of that nature. And um, I, I feel like uncertainty leads to those situations where you just don't see a, a linebacker running timing something perfectly. He saw it before it happened. He arrived early and hit through a catch point or hit a back before they were expecting. And again, Patrick Queen, probably the biggest hit of the season. Week one in Las Vegas absolutely destroys Darren Waller and sends him up hobbling. And then um, from there, you know, their their defense fell apart in that game. They were super aggressive. And I, I think the the manufactured aggression leads to less opportunities to drive or run an alley and devastate physically. Ultimately. I agree with you to me. Uh, I'm kind of mulling this point over my head over the off season. Should I write about it? Should I speak to people? The sim pressures, if you're bouncing out and moving backwards, cause you've crowded the line of scrimmage with six, seven guys. Well, then you have to kind of reset your feet you know, gather and drive down as opposed to the old school three match. You have Cam Chancellor naturally rotating towards the line of scrimmage. Well, yes, then he can arrive at such speed and force when he hits the thing that he's just naturally moving forward. There's a moving forwards, moving backwards structural component to it, I think, too. Um, over to the offense, then. Were you surprised just in a macro sense that they brought Greg Roman back or was that not surprising to you? Not surprising at all. I think there was like an unfinished business offensively um, for the Ravens offense where they felt, you know, we didn't have Ronnie Stanley. We didn't have Nick Boyle. We didn't have J.K. Dobbins, Gus Edwards. Um, Rashad Bateman gets hurt. All of these things happen. Lamar Jackson missed time in camp. Um, you know, there's there's still recurring themes spacing-wise in the past game that you see that are troublesome consistently and even of guys like Hollywood Brown and Mark Andrews. But I don't think I was surprised to see them bring him back. It feels like John Harbaugh has always wanted to run the football. John Harbaugh has always wanted to be physical offensively, play the time of possession game, all of that good stuff. And I don't know, it, it, there's a, a very mixed bag on Greg Roman. Ravens fans, I don't, uh, I can't even remember uh, the last time there was, Matt Cavanaugh was the last time I think the Ravens fan base hated an offensive coordinator so much <laughs> all the way back in the day. Um, it's It's been quite some time, but the pieces they have, they've invested in Nick Boyle. They just re-signed Pat Ricard. They have Mark Andrews, you know, all these guys that are built to run gap, man, power scheme, whatever you want to call it, um, that they have invested in ultimately or, or allocated their capital to. So I think they still see that as a plan, but they've expanded, you know, in terms of, of some usage, they've expanded in terms of where they, they continue to bring in another first round receiver. They are, are trying to shore some things up. So uh, I think this is, if I had to bet, I would say this is the last year of the Greg Roman experience, um, but but wouldn't be surprised to see him have success this year. Also wouldn't be surprised to see them move on from him mid, mid-season if uh, things do fall apart. It did feel like they suspected Jim was coming back to the NFL to Oakland. He was probably going to oh, Vegas, I guess, and he would get the bang back together and maybe take that decision away from them and Greg would go with him and Vic would go with him and they would do that thing and then maybe they could change the staff that way we are now into year three of talk of diversifying the passing game here we go people prepare all the columns prepare all the podcasts it's year three of saying this thing is going to change they're going to evolve they're going to add new pieces and last year 
as you mentioned, the spacing issues there, they have, there's never been a team running to themselves more often, not as a man beater concept early in the route, not as some of the Sean McVay style late option things where two guys read it the wrong way. And so, you know, they end up the same patch of grass or what have you. And that happens on, on a shot play. Just it within the natural flow of the progression, they have guys running into each other all the damn time. And these are isolation routes. It makes absolutely no sense to me. I, it might be the most, well, it certainly is the most frustrating passing game in the league to me because when you go through the figures, Lamar is, I think, at like 0.9 on completion percentage over expectation, which for the listeners at home is when they take the chips and the pads, the NFL data, they mash it all together and they spell out a figure that says, should he have completed the ball based the distance between the receiver and the defensive back? Changing the, the difficulty of the throw. Yeah. Thank you. So much easier. Um, and the historical nonsense around all that. I think he's 0.9, which basically tells you he completes every throw he should make. And given that he has the most unique value of any quarterback in the league as a runner, that should just be a gangbusters offense every single time. It sh this should be so easy in the intermediate to deep passing game. And indeed, last season, they basically said, forget quick game. Fuck that. That doesn't exist anymore. We're taking 20 shots game. If Lamar's going to drop back and they're loading up to stop the run and we have all these heavy personnel packages... Let's just throw it down the field every time. But it still feels very staccato, right? There's just something about it where, to me, it lacks rhythm. Routes don't intersect. They don't beat people with, with man-beater concepts. They, they're, they're rarely ever winning in the passing game through play design. It's you go and win your route. And they're banking a lot on guys winning each and every down on the perimeter that they, they just don't often have. Yeah, winning a lot of matchups. Um, and when they were successful last year, you're, you're spot on. They said, let's run the ball and push the ball as deep as we possibly can, as much as we can. I think through probably the Broncos game, I think four weeks in, the Colts game five weeks in, somewhere around there, he was averaging like 18, 19 air yards per throw. Insane. <laughs> Just pushing the ball downfield, pushing the ball downfield nonstop and, and had pretty good success with it. The same kind of thing, you know, and, and why the wheels fell off for Lamar himself, it felt like the same thing we saw in 2020. I felt like I was, it was just full deja vu. He didn't trust his protection. His eyes go down sooner. He doesn't have a lot of quick outlets or manufactured underneath concepts to get the ball out quickly. Has a little bit of a propensity to say, I am the greatest runner as a quarterback, at least, and, and maybe in the NFL of this generation of football, I can, you know, win and go take myself out of the pocket, make a play, make someone miss, do all these things. So it was just kind of a perfect storm of not having those underneath options, not having the quick timing that was there and, and wanting to push the ball deep ultimately as an offense that ends up leading to where their season collapsed in week nine, 10 against the Miami dolphins on a Thursday night um, to a perfect storm where the dolphins said, we're going to, to, do as much as we can to attack this poor offensive line. We're going to show all the pressure. You're not going to have underneath stuff. We're going to man up. And we have Xavier Howard and Byron Jones, guys that are going to win matchups more often than not. So good luck, Lamar. And it completely fizzled out. It was the worst offensive performance of Lamar's career, the worst offensive performance of Greg Roman's Ravens. And we saw the Cincinnati Bengals give a little preview uh, about two weeks prior, two games prior where they were starting to walk guys up and, and run some of these pressures. And the Dolphins are like, hey, why don't we just do that the whole game? They literally couldn't beat it. Um, we're one in seven 
let's go see if we can make make a fun storyline out of this. <laughs> and we're just going to attack them for four quarters uh, on a short week. And they absolutely bamboozled the Ravens. You saw the Bears do it the following week. You saw the Browns do it the following week. And they just didn't have it within themselves to be able to play quick timing rhythm, you know, schemed stuff to, to execute. And they even had answers that were like speed options and bullet slants and quick, simple, even like high school level stuff. And they just didn't have the offensive line, didn't have the timing down and couldn't do it consistently. And it was like, they can do the most difficult thing in football. They can push the ball deep, but they can't throw the ball underneath on a, on a slant consistently. So it was, it was a, a big brain of big brains in Greg Roman's offense. This is one of the unique challenges they face, right? Because they have this system where it is heavy personnel oriented. I know they still run more, 11 personnel more than they run anything else because everyone does. That's football. But it's harder for them to tie some of the quick game stuff to their run game stuff. And they face this question similar to what the Titans have faced in the past, which is how do we marry our run game to our pass game? So it's not as it was for the Titans. If you watch when Derek Henry went out, they had their run guys and then they would spread out and it would be spread and it became so predictable bouncing from essentially one offense to the other rather than them flowing naturally and that is the the question they face and that's where you get Lamar where as you mentioned then the, the Miami game where the book on him has long been send the house just send pressure I mean he's getting blitzed at like a 40 percent rate which just does not happen in the NFL because good quarterbacks destroy the blitz that's like Mitch Trubisky numbers. You mentioned those those two games. I think it was over sixty percent, right? It's some crazy figure that will not be. You will never see that again in the modern game. That someone is sending, unless someone runs a triple option offense for a week, or someone gets hurt. You will never see sixty percent in a professional football game again. And he saw it twice in like three weeks or something. So, uh, do you have an answer in mind where you think, just as your own football mind, how they can better tie? the run from the gun pistol escort motion stuff that they really want to base out of that's who they want to be. Then they kind of have to build this passing game on top and trying to fit all those pieces together. This, the jigsaw doesn't quite mesh for them, right? Certainly. I mean, I look at the Raiders as a team that's able to go stack a Renfro and a Waller together. And the Ravens tried this at times, but it felt like it was, you know, a little half, half done, done lazily where you're able to just take a big body and have him pick in front and just running more rub routes, running more picks, quick stuff, um, t- timing it better. The the one thing that has held the Ravens back as well is just they don't, and, and Bateman does have this to a degree. He's not going to end up being an elite NFL player at it, but they just don't have a yak guy. They don't have someone that consistently can just make one guy miss and make a defense say, oh, we can't blitz anymore because if you go put – one DB one-on-one with AJ Brown, he might take it to the house three times out of five because he is going to make a guy miss. He is going to run past us. And they drafted Hollywood Brown. He was outstanding at Oklahoma after the catch, all these things and get screws in his foot turns into a little bit of, you know, I'm going to take care of myself. He avoided contact as a rookie, all these things. He was maybe supposed to be that he's not, they have no one who can take a slant 70 yards. They just don't have that. So I think the answer is, Timing in the offseason simply mixed with finding someone who can make a defense pay if you put them one-on-one and just even throwing them a quick, like at times there was Rashad Bateman and late even in that Dolphins game, you see them just running a one-step slant and he gets 10 yards. And it's someone who can work over the middle of the field, break a tackle, running a little bit more rub routes and just simple things to get a little shuffle going on, get a guy in space and go beat down on on guys in matchups. And again, it was like, 
I'm watching them run a speed option. They had, you know, a, I can even think of a play. It's Lamar Jackson and Devontae Freeman. Jerome Baker, the linebacker for the Dolphins, plays both of them and goes and hunts down Devontae Freeman. So I just think even just having like a J.K. Dobbins back on a football field and being able to flip him a football is going to take some of that away. Just quick outlets, quick things, get the ball out of Jackson's hands, take it all away. And somebody has to make someone pay eventually for running those blitzes. Like Jonathan Taylor on the Colts did to the Ravens. You know, mm-hmm. you can't go blitz and not have a wave of defenders waiting inside because he will take it to the house. And they just didn't have that as well. And they have to be maybe not listening to this right now, but even irregardless, banging their heads against the office walls, going, We drafted Hollywood Brown. The whole point of this endeavor was to do just what you said smoke screen, pop screen, stand up, throw him the ball, don't even call it a row, jet sweeps, motions. Everyone's terrified of him with their eyes if he doesn't get the ball. And everyone's terrified of him if he gets the ball in his hands. And it just it just has not, it's not clicked that way for them. Never materialized. Um, the most interesting part of that draft is like DK, DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, Debo <laughs> Samuel, even Terry McLaurin, all guys that are going to do exactly that for you. And the Ravens decided to, there was an article from the Ringer um, that interviewed Hollywood Brown two years ago, or I think last offseason, maybe the offseason before. And it ends up coming out that the Ravens base, Eric DaCosta, the Ravens general manager, approached Lamar and said, hey, buddy, who do you want? What, what receivers do you want? Lamar, a South Florida guy himself, said, I want either Hollywood Brown, Hollywood, Florida, Broward County, or Jerry Judy the following year, Broward County as well. He wanted his guys from around there. And they just had an opportunity where if they made that pick, any of those other guys that weren't J.J. Ortega, Whiteside, or Nikhil Harry, then you're walking away with someone that does exactly that for you after the catch. And they still don't quite have it. And it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, Hollywood Brown does things great. He's a great deep ball tracker, runs full speed routes with so much nuance. It's impossible to keep up with him if he's running, you know, a post that has a little bit of a two-way go, but take that away. Have a, have Xavier Howard, have Byron Jones, guys that can keep up with him and pin him to the sideline. And ultimately you're, you're cooked. So they, they went to Bateman too late in that game. A guy that I think in 2019, his last healthy college season, forced a missed tackle on a third of his catches. And we're like, oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, in the fourth quarter, we forgot we had this guy. Let's start throwing him a couple slants. Suddenly he gets four or five first downs for you and you get a scoring drive out of it. I was going to ask you about Bateman. Where are you at with him on his development? I think he's fully good to go, developed, awesome and capable of, of being a real, like, I don't think he's going to turn, he's never going to turn into Justin Jefferson or someone of that nature, but I just see the full release package. You see the ability to win at all three levels. He has so much nuance in everything he does. He's, he drives so low, sits so low out of the stem. And when he is attacking a ball in the air, you see the way he positions himself, the hand usage, just the eyes, the tracking ability, the length that he plays with all of those things a natural competitiveness about him. The only thing he didn't have last year was enough functional strength, I think, um, especially with the ball in his hands, probably a result of getting a surgery in the beginning of the season and not being able to you know, maintain your physique and keep on some functional strength. Looks like he's already gotten started on that. But to me, he just is a very complete receiver already that we've already seen, um, has a sneaky like fourth gear that he can hit through when he's giving you, you know, a a little bit of hezzy at the top of his stem can just transition right through a vertical route. And it kind of shocks DBs quite a few times in the Vikings game and the Browns game and, and over and over again, both Browns games, actually, he just 
hits you with something, you feel like you're going to have to drive on a football and then he's gone blowing right by you with enough speed to be a real vertical threat. So very bullish on him. Um, ultimately think he's going to be an answer for a lot of these questions for them moving forward, but had no training camp with Lamar didn't get activated until, you know, deep into the season and, and was a rough start for him, but made some, Hey, um, got to force him the ball a little more, more manufactured touches, more, more targets. I didn't study every snap of his last year, but I did watch him in the Cleveland game, I believe in Cleveland. Um, and he was he was pretty special, I felt like. I was watching him and I, there is no wasted motion with him. And I feel like they don't help him design-wise. Everything is a stop route and him returning to the ball. Now, I don't know if that was a Huntley thing where they wanted to present the target better rather than having things move. But you're just asking to not get yak if it's a stop situation as opposed to every route combination has guys on the move that's a lot of what they run i know that's greg roman's dating back to like the 70s and 80s it's like you present a target to the quarterback and it's supposed to make it easier but so much of the game now is everyone at all levels wants guys on the move on every single uh route concept is that at least two guys will be moving with the ball after they catch the ball is the idea and they just don't do an awful lot of that. And him in particular, his, his development is interesting to me because I really feel like if they are going to evolve in some way, they have to have a backside three-by-one killer. And he doesn't really have the body type for that, but he did do that in that Cleveland game. They ran more three-by-one sets and he mauled people on the backside. And I think it was Ward he was going up against as well, one-on-one -on -one for much of that. And he is just so efficient in his movement. that there's, Like I said, there's no wasted motion. He just pops open because the rules are such in the game now that it's too to his advantage if there's, if there's no waste in his motion. So I do wonder, can he become that guy? Like I said, the body type isn't quite right. He's not quite big enough. You mentioned someone like DK there. That's not natural three by one backside guy. So I don't know. Do you think they'll look for someone like that in the offseason, the draft, and then slide Bateman into more of that bunch stuff where you would more naturally find his body type and skill set? Or do you think they'll use him as the, the backside guy? I think that Bateman provides the ability to win in those ISO situations um, as that backside guy. And, and we did see him get targeted. That's why they brought him in. I think ultimately, because in 2020, they targeted Lamar Jackson targeted a receiver that was isolated on their side of the formation. I think it was 16 times. Nine of them were Hollywood Brown and the rest of them were like a, a an attached tight end. Uh, no other receiver got a single target as an isolated receiver on their side of the formation. Uh, so Bateman can give you that. He's great in the slot. I think he's just a very balanced overall receiver. But as Daniel Jeremiah always says, and I will always go back and allude to it, it's, it's that starting five. You want to have all of the body types and skill sets. You've got Mark Andrews. He's your center. You've got Bateman, who's kind of your slashing combo guard, can, can do a little bit of everything. The biggest mistake just like the hindsight, they should have drafted this guy that I hate when people do, but they trusted Miles Boykin to develop into that guy. It didn't work out. They didn't trust him. Lamar didn't trust him to run the right route, be in the right spot. And they drafted Patrick Queen over T Higgins. And if they could find someone like a T Higgins that can be that bigger body type that has the vertical ability and, and can play above the rim and do all of those things, they would have such a complete well-rounded receiver room um, so I do think, you know, at this point, you've got two first round picks, a, a top of market tight end. You've really allocated a lot of capital. Also, just including the other guys, Duvernay, Prochet, Boykin, Hollywood, all those guys. The Ravens have spent more in terms of like the Jerry Jones trade chart of point value in the draft on receiver than any other team since they since 2019. And it's like 
significantly above. They keep drafting receivers, drafting receivers. Now all of a sudden they have this log jam of, well, Mark Andrews plays in the slot mostly. Hollywood Brown's pretty good there. Devin Duvernay is a slot only guy for the most part. Can give you a little bit of flanker. You've got James Prochet who you like a little bit, and he's a slot only guy. So at this point, you know, it's tough to continue. Just keep taking these swings and these at bats over and over and over again. But if again, if they could just find that bigger body that can break tackles, Traylon Burks, putting him in this offense, someone that can just physically dominate a cornerback um, and isolate and break tackles and do all that good stuff would, would be spectacular. Um, George Pickens comes to mind just being someone yeah. that's ultra physical and plays bigger than he is bigger than anyone else in that Ravens receiver room does in the draft. Um, but it's just tough. They've got a lot of needs. They've got a lot of capital and, and going to have to make some tough decisions there. Similar to the Marcus Williams thing we spoke about where if they got that right body type, it would have such a compound impact on the rest of the group. Everyone could kick down one. I think Bateman, by the end of the season, he played a much higher percentage of snaps in the slot than he played for the most of the year. I think he hovered around 14%. Then he ended the year of like 25, 35%, something like that. I wonder if they want him in there getting on the move. It's easy to get guys catching on the move from that role. I wonder if they, if they've had any discussions about going into the veteran trade market, the AFC is now such an arms race. And I have to tell you about that AFC North is just Jesus. That is such a gauntlet to go through that thing. I wonder if they will, you know, they could look to the veteran market. Do they think they could squeeze something out of Julio Jones, for instance, and that's a, a much bigger body type. Do you, could you see them looking into the veteran trade market and maybe not one of the first round picks, but maybe looking to use a second or third round pick? I, you kind of want that adult in the room. Um, they have got a really young room. Hollywood Brown's like the seasoned veteran right now as a guy that's, that's going into his fourth season. And, and that's why I didn't hate they, – they brought in Sammy Watkins last year. I didn't hate that. He had a couple of nice moments, obviously missed, missed a few games, as he tends to do. But um, it's, it's tough. You know, trade-wise, the Ravens just typically – do they have those conversations? Of course. But you don't see them going outside of the organization, outside of the draft, to find offensive pieces very often. It feels like and, – and as an Orioles fan – um, the Baltimore Orioles would always say, we want to buy the bats and grow the arms. And it feels like they see defensively in the free agent market, you can find value. You can sign a guy for, you know, 7 million a year that gives you 10 million a year. You can, you can find value or even value. Whereas, you know, everyone's going crazy about Christian Kirk getting, you know, an astronomical deal where good player. Sure. But are you getting value there? Are you going to get $27 million of play out of him? No, he's not going to be the best receiver in the NFL and you paid him like it. So I think they're a little stingy in that way um, in terms of bringing in outside resources to, to fit, find those answers. And, and they really do just want to build through the draft. Should they? Maybe, maybe not. You know, that's a whole conversation. But and like I said, they've already drafted so many receivers and it felt like the white whale for Ozzie Newsome was getting a Pro Bowl thousand yard drafted receiver to Baltimore. He hit on so many other positions. You know, Swan Song is bringing in Lamar Jackson, all of these things. And so Eric DaCosta was like, well, I'm going to write that wrong. Here's Hollywood Brown. Here's Rashad Bateman, Duvernay, all of these uh, spends in the draft. So it, they've continued to do so. I don't know. It's, it's hard to think we've got, you know, a dominant receiver room. They also just have a lot of holes elsewhere. And at some point, you know, I don't know, the fourth, fifth round guys just aren't going to find a hit rate very often. They're they're you know, you can get some receivers in the third and the second feels like the sweet spot the last few years. But 
Um, I don't know. They, they drafted Boykin for that exact reason. We drafted this big, tall, athletic freak that we think can go destroy in those backside isolated situations. So um, Julio Jones would feel strange, but then again, the Ravens have taken flyers on guys like Jeremy Macklin over the years, you know, Mike Wallace and, and things of that nature. But ultimately I, I would think they bring in a tight end and or receiver with one of their nine picks at some point. Um, don't, you know, don't think another first round pick can really be like justified considering where they're at as a team, but, um, would be remiss to think that's not a, a strong possibility, but they just can't afford any more slot types because they have 14,000 of them at this point. They're so fortunate that they got this draft class too. Cause I, I have 12 receivers in my top 100 right now. And I think nine in the top 40 and you've got the injured guys too, which, you know, is a shame for the players, but really place their advantage that some teams might just get squirrely in the first round and say, we want to have someone who we know is going to be OTA. So we'll just let that guy slide. And all of a sudden you get one of the three or four best guys in the second round, possibly. And the last thing we have to hit on before I let you go is the fact that Patrick Ricard is back. The most important player in football. I had the, the the unfortunate thing of going through trying to prep for this pod. I was like, let me go and canvas some Ravens things, see if there's anything I've not missed that like is really really matters to Ravens fans. And there is like a massive split I'm discovering in the online community about Patrick Ricard. All out warfare. It is wild. I mean, they run. The most fun package in the NFL is their escort motion package where they basically cheat the rules and they slingshot Patrick Ricard across the formation where he is running at the line of scrimmage at the snap. It is illegal and he tilts towards the line of scrimmage and it is wonderful and they just crush people. I think they had average 8.6 yards per carry or something daft with him on the field or him attached to the line of scrimmage. That is, he is basically a guaranteed first down when he goes in motion. It makes no sense. I don't know how it's allowed and it's delightful. And is the concern just that because they have him, it constricts the offense. That stuff we were talking before about how they have to be so isolation based. They can't be like a spread out Ram style offense. What, what is the concern with Ricard? In terms of like the Ravens online community fan base, they just want nothing more than for Lamar Jackson to throw for 4,700 yards <laughs> and, and be, you know, a pass heavy dominant quarterback like a Josh Allen was the last couple of years or like Deshaun Watson was in 2020 or Mahomes. They just have this like Napoleon complex because of the, the running back jokes and things like that. So that is the overarching sort of, uh, weight that they carry on their shoulders. So they view Ricard as a Trojan horse of Greg Roman, essentially that <laughs> as long as they have a fullback, which is, I, I like football because it's a violent sport. I think that it is like modern gladiators. That is what made me play the sport when I was young. That is what keeps my attention and what I love about it so dearly. And to, to hate that is just awful, but there's that whole Napoleon complex about it or maybe not the right word, but you get what I'm saying. And then on top of it, it factors into this weird disconnect that because Ricard is on the field that like James Prochet or Devin Duvernay are not, and they are angry. They think that Ricard is taking snaps away from a wide receiver, but it will just be another fullback. If it's not Ricard, they're just going to use someone else. So the, they all, the, there's this other, I don't know, there's a whole, the Ravens online community is, is very deep into cap space and comp picks as a result of the <laughs> sort of organization that the Ravens have made themselves into. And they hate comp picks now. 
They don't like Nick Boyle anymore. They don't like Patrick Ricard anymore. They want Zadarius Smith signed and they want big Madden like acquisitions. Um, every single time someone signed that, that don't logistically fill out a football team, but are very, they see the Rams and basically want to be the Rams. Um, it, it feels like, so it's, it's very interesting Ricard, like you said, and even just looking at like splits and of course there's a lot of noise in these, but if you look at splits with Ricard on and off the field, of course, play action passing is more efficient, but in the past game, and you can even go watch him single block Yannick Ngakwe or single block like good defensive ends in six man, seven man protections. But then the EPA when he's on the field in, in the passing game is a 0.27 difference. It is a quarter of a point higher. Their bust rate is 20% when he's off the field, 7% when he's on the field. And then in the run game, it's the same thing. It's like 0.2 higher. And that's crazy because there's this whole theory as well that, oh, well, running into a light box is always going to be easier. And so if the fullback's on the field, then it's going to be so much harder. But they are astronomically better at running the football in terms of EPA per play when he's on the field. So uh, even like Tyreek Hill has tweeted about him and been like, dudes, yeah. that big shouldn't move that well. <laughs> like, what is this guy? And he's $3 million a year. And he's just this. Uh, it's, it, it, it's insane. He is quite literally, if you take out quarterbacks, right? Him and Kittle are probably the two most valuable people in a run game in the NFL. Now, do they get help from that motion stuff that both teams like to run? Yes, they get some help. But to have that value dropped into your offense when you have that running quarterback and then the value that gives them in the play-action game, that's the thing, guys. Do you want to have a C-minus receiver on the field to help your play-action game or have an A-plus run player who opens up space by the fact he's still staying in the backfield? It's it's just in terms of in terms of helping out pass pro in six and seven man when your offensive line stinks and has injury problems, but also it forces linebackers on the field. It forces teams to use bigger personnel and match what the Ravens have. And then what are they thinking? It's not like it's, you know, and no disrespect to him, but like Andy Yanovich from the Browns, but it's like, all right, I got this fullback. I'm going to go engage. I'm going to have to go stick him in the hole. It's like, uh, I better psych myself up to go hit Pat Ricard. Like I better come downhill with authority with my hands in the right spot, or he's going to move me and they're going to run for 13 yards. So just in terms of dictating personnel and making linebackers read their run keys very, very, very well in a complex rushing offense, it's just like, he's, he's the perfect storm of a nightmare within their offense. And that's the real key there, that last thing of if they were running, like you just said there, they were just running dive 20 times a game and they were slamming the fullback. Like I get the Patriots, they've said now we're moving on from the fullback. For the last two years, they said slam the fullback through the hole and the running back can follow him. It's like, okay, this really does constrict the offense. But the Ravens run the most complex running scheme in the entire NFL, in part because they have this magical player. They can move around all across the formation and create an extra gap wherever they want. And he's dominant no matter which gap he winds up in. That's a cheat code that only the Ravens and the Niners have. That's it's it's unbelievable value. You know how much Bill Belichick would want to give to that guy if he could go and get him? It would be crazy. And I imagine if Belichick stole him away, there'd be a meltdown online. Like, oh my god, we had a really good play because Belichick stole him away. It, it's the exact exact catch twenty two of that situation. Ricard's from Massachusetts, and that was one of the spots. Everyone's like. How, how are the Patriots not drooling? Or even in, in Las Vegas, how's Josh McDaniels? Yeah. You know, they let go of Ingold. I can't remember. They brought in what? Uh, Johnson, the other fullback. Um, I, I was just like, oh, wow. Okay, McDaniels is going to be like, hmm, let me bring him over here. Suddenly, my Josh Jacobs is going to be running behind a Clydesdale and able to do whatever he wants. And 
it, it's, you know, and the sad part is Nick Boyle is like the equivalent of that and is the size of an offensive tackle, like height and length wise. That's what made 2019 so magical is that they had like what I used to call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Hayden Hurst, Mark Andrews, Pat Ricard, and Nick Boyle. And not that, you know, Hurst or Andrews were world beaters as blockers, but they're big bodies. And you've got these other two that can just one-on-one Nick Boyle can drive and end off the ball. Pat Ricard can go seal out an entire gap. And then you've got, you know, Mark Ingram or Gus Edwards running behind it, or God forbid Lamar Jackson. And, and if not, Oh, let's pull the ball and have Boyle out in front of him. One of the best in space blockers in the NFL. So um, you know, the, they, they had a strange situation. Boyle ends up tearing his ACL. They give him an extension afterwards. He can't play last year. And that's kind of just the two last remaining dominoes of the Ravens offense that, you know, we talked about maybe trading for a receiver or something like that, but the uncertainty of Ronnie Stanley's ankle and Lamar Jackson's extension feel like they can't make a huge power play until they have certainty around those two things. So offensively, I think that's a good way to like segue into the, the end of that conversation is like they are kind of stuck in a weird spot, not knowing if the highest paid left tackle in football can play this season or not again. And if Lamar Jackson's, you know, when is he going to sign an extension? Is he going to sign an extension? All of those things are somewhat hobbling. So they really are hogtied to just making good sound long-term moves like, a oh, the rangy free safety that's young uh, that, that can help our defense. That's a good now investment and a good long-term investment. It's safe. Um, so they're, they're kind of stuck there. There were so many things about the Deshaun Watson situation that were obviously a fiasco. We covered that for listeners in the show earlier this week. One of the things that did come out of that was all the people, and I'm explicitly talking to Mike Florio here, who have dumped on Lamar Jackson's handling of his contractual situation, must now owe an apology. Because when that news came down the line, Lamar Jackson will have just gone into the, the Ravens office and said, fully guaranteed. Thank you very much. And I'll see you guys on Monday. Um, Spencer Schultz, this was really fun. I could sit and do this with you for literally six, seven, eight hours. Hopefully we can have you back. People can go follow you at Ravens for Dummies. They can go read your stuff on the Baltimore Beatdown. They can go, as I said, go back through the YouTube channel and binge watch some of the breakdowns from throughout the season. Thank you for doing this. It was a blast. It was such a blast. Thank you so much, Ali. I uh, look forward to some more fun conversations and we'll get real caffeinated again and, and run our mouths as fast as we can. So this was an absolute blast. Thank you so much. 